It has been a delight to be with the men throughout the weekend and the women who were sitting in the hallway back there. Um, so it's been a real joy to, uh, to open the word. Uh, this is such a sweet church. My father-in-law, Bruce Ware, has been here a number of times and has told me about this church and of the warmth and the love for God's word and the faithfulness. And now I've gotten to experience it for myself. So thank you for the privilege to the elders and the pastoral team. At the age of 12, I left my home, father, mother, brothers, and sisters, never to see them again. The glory of the priestly life, the enchantments of the Catholic monastery, and the salvation of my soul envisaged on the horizon of my mind overcame the natural sadness that came over me as I took leave of my family in the scenes of my childhood. At high school, God was presented to my young mind as a stern judge, ready to render to us according to our sins, an angry God that had to be appeased by good works, penances, and mortifications. Confession was obligatory every week, and this was generally held on Saturday, and had to be made to the same novice master, who was at the same time our superior and constant supervisor. It is not difficult to imagine the anxiety and mental torture that such unmerciful practice inflicted on the young trainees who literally dreaded the approach of Saturday. This is a quotation from a man named Jose Fernandez. He went into the Catholic priesthood, and his words are telling. In his view, God was a stern judge, an angry God, and there's no mention here in his early testimony of grace or mercy. In this Dominican environment, what followed? According to the words I just read, I just quoted, anxiety, mental torture, dread. These are hard words to read. They remind us that many people around us are fed a false vision of the true biblical God, or it is a one-sided and imbalanced view of the biblical God. It is, of course, true in Scripture that God judges all sin for all eternity. It is true that our sins do anger God, and justly so, rightly so. But that is half the story. There is a glorious side of the character of God in terms of his love and his kindness and his forgiveness. And we're going to look at that this morning in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. We've already read these verses, but we're going to see four glorious truths about our life as Christians. What a morning, what a morning to preach after usually you might get one baptism or two. We had seven. That was... uh, That was a lot for me to handle emotionally. I just want you to know that. That was almost unfair to the guest preacher, in fact. But that was truly beautiful. And uh, what we're talking about this morning is exactly what we were uh, bearing witness to just a few moments ago. Four glorious truths about our life as adopted children. You know that we're all adopted as Christians. Every single Christian. First, we're going to see that we're dead to the flesh and fear. Verses 12 through 15a. Second, we're going to see that we're adopted as sons. Verse 15b. Third, we're going to see that we are infinitely loved by the Father. Verse 15b. And fourth, we're going to see that we are heirs of God. Verses 16 and 17. Let's pray once more. Father, please add blessing to your word. I pray for those who are listening and hearing this. I pray that you will work in our hearts, and I pray that you will drive out falsehood and that you will cause truth to settle in 
and it will be a great ministering agent to your people. I pray that you will make those who are not your people, your people. We have already celebrated this this morning. We've celebrated your grace, your saving work. Uh, We've seen numerous baptisms, and I pray that there will be more to come as a result of the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. First truth this morning. We as believers are dead to the flesh and fear. Who is a Christian? A Christian is quite simply a debtor. We just sang Amazing Grace, probably the song in Christian history that most captures this reality, this idea that we owe everything to God. And right off the bat from our passage, we see just how uh, against the grain the Christian faith is compared to our culture. What do you frequently hear in American culture today? You frequently hear it said, oh, you should totally do that. You deserve that. Oh, you deserve every good thing that's happening to you. Oh, yeah, that's owed to you. Of course you should get that. You deserve that. We hear that all over the place. Where does the biblical mind situate things? Not in deserving anything, but in being a debtor. We owe nothing to the flesh. The flesh has given us nothing. Our sin nature, Paul says, has not blessed us in any way. Instead, we owe everything to God. God is the one who has given us every good gift. Every human person who has breath, who has life, who has experienced even the smallest, smallest measure of joy and happiness in this world owes everything they have to God, whether they know it or not. Every Christian is a debtor. That's all we are. We owe everything to God. Even just this truth, Christian, will drive out all sorts of bad thinking from your mind that you are prone to and that I am prone to. Where throughout the day, throughout the week, we think to ourselves, why hasn't God given me X? Why can't this hard situation resolve? Why is this so painful in my life? We're not dismissing those realities. There are hard elements of our lives, very hard elements in a fallen world as sinners. But fundamentally, Paul starts us off and says, hey, 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 you're not a victim. You're a debtor. You owe everything to God. And you don't owe anything, according to the flesh, end of verse 12, to live according to the flesh, kata sarkos in the Greek, according to the flesh. That's the old way that we heard referenced in testimony after testimony. There's a way of living when you're living in your sin that is according to your flesh. You've got that little engine, that little voice in your mind that urges you on to sin against God. It's natural. Do what comes naturally. That's what the voice says, and guess what? That's what our culture tells us as well. Do what comes naturally. If it comes naturally to you, that must be good 
because you are inherently good. If you want to do it, you go right ahead and do it. This is all around us. If you think that you are a girl trapped in a boy's body, then you can have explosive bodily surgery and change yourself and take on a new identity. And that is good because that comes naturally to you. And the Bible comes to us and it says, much that comes naturally to you and me drives us the way of death. Verse 13, if you live katasarkos, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. You will not only die a physical death, you will die an eternal death. You will die under the judgment of God, drinking the wrath of God beyond all time. That is where the flesh leads. That is not what our culture is going to tell you. But this is what the word of God tells us. To live according to the flesh is to walk one step after another toward death, toward the black hole, towards wrath, towards that which will take you apart and there will be nothing left of you. But there is another way. You don't have to die eternally. According to this passage, you can live. If by the Spirit, verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what the Holy Spirit helps us do. The Holy Spirit comes into our heart and saves us. It's called regeneration. Gives us a new heart that loves God. So it's not actually about you and me making our heart new. We don't change our heart. We don't cause ourselves to believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit John 3 comes into a person's heart, gives them new life, and they are born again. And and, and so they can have heard the gospel message all their days. They can have gone to church for hundreds of weeks in their life. They can have sat under the preaching of the word over and over again. They can be a boy or girl, a young man or young woman, and go to a great place like Ascend Camp. And they can hear the word of God and they can uh, have these strange speakers put on strange hats and all sorts of things and play these raucous games. And it can be a lot of fun, but it cannot land and it cannot change their heart until the spirit comes. The Holy Spirit makes us live. The Holy Spirit makes us Alive. There's such discussion about the Holy Spirit today among churches. There are so many churches that teach you, not what this church teaches you, that the Holy Spirit's ministry is really to cause you to do things you've never thought you could do or to bring your greatest dreams to fruition or to give you what you want or to unlock these mystical experiences that no one can really understand. And that is not what this passage says the Spirit will do. This passage says the Spirit will enable you to do what? To go to war against sin. The Holy Spirit shows up, knocks on your door. You open the door. Yes? Let's go to war. Let's go to war against your flesh. Let's kill sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You can turn on lots of TV channels. 
even today, even in 2023, on your, on your television, or you can fire up lots of videos on YouTube, and you can find all sorts of people talking about the Holy Spirit, and they'll never say a word about the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Do you have fleshly deeds? Do they cause you pain? Do you want to overcome them? I have very good news. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is knocking on your door every morning and not in a grim, angry way, in a life-giving, joyful way, like the best friend you've ever had, the friend who has helped lead you into the Christian faith and told you the truth and encouraged you to know God more, that friend that you're around and you're almost lifted up in that experience. The Holy Spirit is like that, except times 100,000. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside the believer for all their days, indwells the believer, And then the Holy Spirit, verse 14, leads you. The Holy Spirit leads you to glorify God and love God and obey God and follow what the New Testament teaches. And this means that you are a son of God. You might think, yes, son and daughter. No, for this passage, son of God. More on that in a moment. But basically, you're the one who is the inheritor of everything God has to give. No Christian has been held back from the goodness of God. God has poured the goodness of his spirit into all who are followers of Christ. We've been called out of the flesh. We've been called out of fearfulness. We are now led by the Spirit. And now in the Spirit's power, the main ministry of the Holy Spirit to us is to kill sin. It is to kill sin. So those moments you have of conscience when you think, "Mm, mm, 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 this isn't good. Okay, that's not a good thought. That's not a good action. That wasn't a good word. Uh, Okay, contemplating a plan. That's probably not the best plan. When you are a Christian and you have those thoughts, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading you. The Holy Spirit is helping you. The Holy Spirit is ministering grace to you. Sanctification, growth and godliness, is all of the Holy Spirit. It's not on your own terms. It's not up to you to get this done. It's ultimately up to God. Be very encouraged about your Christian life. The Holy Spirit is going to help you. The Holy Spirit is going to work in your spouse if they are a believer. The Holy Spirit is going to work in your children when they are a Christian. Know this. It's not up to you. This frees you from trying to be the Holy Spirit, which many of us are tempted to be. We like control. We want to control others. We want to control others to the extent that we think we can control their heart and their mind. Well, look, there's different duties according to different roles and stations of life. Fathers and mothers really do have to set parameters and rules and these kind of things absolutely and hold kids to account and spouses should be speaking into each other's life graciously and lovingly, but convictionally, that is good. That's not bad. That's very good. We want to hear that. We don't want to fight it off. We want to receive it, but we cannot be the Holy Spirit for one another. Only the Holy Spirit can change us, and the Holy Spirit will change us. Hey, Christian, be freed 
from trying to be God in someone else's life. I don't mean don't be an edifying, loving Christian. Do that. Be an influence. Absolutely. Do what you can do. Pray for them, but leave it to God to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very good at being the Holy Spirit. All of this means that we have been called out of the flesh and we have been called out of fear. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear drenches a godless people. When God is gone in people's minds, I mean, you know what's left? You know what remains? Fear. Fear remains. Fear is a mighty, rushing force in America today. Fear is really what politicians have left, especially those who have changed our world in the last several years. They have tried to put us under the ministry of fear. There should, I'm surprised there's not a government agency for that, the ministry of fear, because it would be very apropos based on how we have been engaged as citizens for several years now. Well, here is what I'm here to say. The Holy Spirit destroys fear. We haven't received a spirit of slavery, verse 15, such that we fear God's wrath as Christians. We have received the Holy Spirit such that we don't fear God's wrath as Christians. Now, a fear of God remains for us and it is a reverential awe. It is a holy adoration. It is a clear sense that God is God and we are not God. So all of that still is in place for the believer. Absolutely. But the believer does not live in slavery to sin. And as a result, does not live in fear of God's condemnation. This leads to our second glorious truth. We have been adopted as sons. We see this in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We are all an adopted child of God, and it is through the agency of the Trinitarian person known as the Holy Spirit. God forbid that we who love sound doctrine, we who love reformed theology would talk this much about the Holy Spirit. Paul's letters, the New Testament, is dripping with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for our Christian walk. It is not the person of God that only charismatics or someone like that talks about. We must talk a great deal about the Holy Spirit because we have received the Holy Spirit. And in Receiving the Holy Spirit, our adoption is secure. Our adoption is completely secure. The Father has sent the Spirit into our hearts. In our sin, formerly, we had no home. I mean in spiritual terms. We had no family. We belonged to no one. No one loved us. The devil was our father, John eight forty four, but not in a positive way. The devil was a destructive, raging, evil, angry, horrific father. 
and to be in your sin, to not be a Christian, whether you're aware of it or not, is to have the devil for your father. And he hates you. He's a hateful father. But then God sends the spirit and you're adopted by God the father. And it is a beautiful reality. Your instant family. Have you seen an adoption happen in natural terms in a family? It's one of the most beautiful things that happens on planet Earth. We're in a day and age that tells us we're supposed to live according to skin color. We're not really supposed to mix. We hear that from all sides, all angles. We're supposed to define ourselves according to our skin color. One of the most beautiful things you see is a Christian family that has adopted children. It doesn't have to be across skin color. Who cares? But it's beautiful when you see it because it reminds you that the gospel gives you a love for all people, not just people who will have your background or people who look like you. Absolutely not. All people. I remember when this happened in my own home, when my sister was brought to our home from Columbia, and uh, I had instantly a little sister. I was six years old. I'd never had another child in the house. I was living pretty high off the hog, if you will, as an only child. I had the run of the place, I thought. And then all of a sudden, there's another one right there. There was no pregnancy or anything like that to, to get adjusted to. What's happening? Let's figure this out, Dad and Mom. Something's, you're, you're up to something. Okay, I don't understand it, but uh, eventually there's going to be another child here. No, there was none of that. It was, we're going out of town for multiple weeks, and then I had a sister, and it was so beautiful. We, we instantly loved her, and I, I instantly felt that for her, that affection for her. It's like that, but so much greater in the family of God. All who become a Christian are adopted into a family. No one is a natural-born child of God, but God is in the business of going around to orphanages and selecting children for himself. This one is coming home with me. This one is coming home with me. I want this one to come into my home and be loved. That is what it is to be a Christian. Sometimes you hear tragic stories about adoptions gone wrong and children will be put on planes and sent back to terrible circumstances, one of the saddest things you can ever hear about. There is no reversion of adoption. There is no unadoption in the Christian faith. God never sends anyone back. When he adopts you, you are adopted, and no one can unadopt you. You are loved, Jeremiah 31.3, with an everlasting love. You are not loved because you are lovely. You are not loved because you, you're a good kid. Oh, okay, you keep yourself in the love. I got to stay loved. I don't know. I don't know if God's going to keep loving me. I'm not doing very well this month. I got to make him love me. No, that's not the Christian faith. Christian faith is that God loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you when you are unlovely. We are all cleaned up nice for church. We're all putting on our best manners, yes? Okay? 
even if the ride to church was a little chaotic and, you know, crazy. Where are the, where are the, the shoes for the kids? I thought you were getting the kids' shoes. No, I thought you were getting the kids' shoes. We had a few weeks when the kids were younger. I have three kids, 14, 11, and 9, where the kids came to church with no shoes. <laughs> so that was, that was elite parenting right there, elite Christian parenting. We come in here and we, you know, we seek to love one another and it's, it's, it's real, it's authentic. We're joyful to be a, with the church of God. We are the church, it's not a building. And yet, we have our unlovely moments, don't we? We have our rough spots. Our marriages are not perfect. We're not ideal fathers or mothers. None of us is. We have our times when we are unlovely. But here's the good news. God loves us. God doesn't love us because we work ourselves back into the love of God. God loves us because he loves us. We stay adopted because God keeps us. He's that good. This is the part of God you don't hear about in our culture. This is the doctrine of God that even Christians sometimes underplay. But God is incredibly loving. All of this flows through the cross. All of this happens because the man Christ Jesus came to earth about 2,000 years ago and died on a Roman cross. And when he died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God against our sin That's called propitiation. And he washed us clean of all our guilt and shame. That's called expiation. Fancy 50 cent terms. But even if you do not get the term, (laughs) understand the reality. The wrath of God is satisfied because the man Christ Jesus stepped in between you and God. And now all your sins are washed when you have faith in Christ. It's, it's too good to be true. Sounds like to us a lot, like no, preacher, guy, don't we have to add, it shouldn't, it's kinda like the potluck, it's, it's kinda like the picnic, shouldn't I bring a dish? I mean, can I bring Fritos? I don't know. Pickles, you know, salsa, I don't, choose it. You can tell that I, add a lot to these things. My wife is like, what should we bring? I'm like, Tostitos, <laughs> chips again. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, just bring the Tostitos. <laughs> Shouldn't I bring chips and salsa? We can stop at Target on the way. No. God says, no, 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 no. Don't bring anything. Just come. Come to me. Repent of your sin and receive my son. Receive what he has done for you on the cross. 1 Corinthians 7, 23. You were bought with a price. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit, there he is again, has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he, Christ, obtained with his own blood. The blood of Christ has bought you back You don't bring anything. You just come. That's it. 
That's it. And now there is no fear of condemnation that remains in us Christians. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, John writes, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You and I think, no, um, I'm sorry, I want to come to you. I hear you calling to me as a good father. Child, child, you out there? Come here, come to me. Come back. Come talk to me. What's wrong? No, I can't. I can't come. I've had a rough week. I've got too much sin, God. I can't come back to you. I, I'm distant from you. God says, there's no fear in love. Come back. Come on back. And that's because of our third truth. We're infinitely loved by the Father infinitely loved by God the Father. That's what the end of verse 15 says. Because we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, now we cry, Abba, Father. God the Father has kind of disappeared from a lot of evangelical theology. In academic circles and seminaries, people don't really talk a lot about God the Father. You can't really say, this is what the Father does. This is distinctly who the Father is. You can say a few things, but you're not really supposed to say much more than that. You get in trouble if you do. But the Bible itself gives us a glorious HD depiction of God the Father. And God the Father wants you to cry to him. Not in fear, but in love, in hope, in joy, in delight. It's like, what Paul is saying here in verse 15, is like when a father who works hard to provide comes home from a long day and the kids get wind of it. There's a rippling in the air. Dad's, dad's truck is in the driveway. Oh, this is exciting. So when the kids are very, very little, oftentimes, I can distinctly remember this. The three kids, you come through the door and the first two would be my girls, and they would softly squeeze me. Oh, it was so nice. Daddy. And then down the hall, I would see him. <laughs> my son. And he would be ready for me. And he would be maybe rocking back and forth a little bit, getting his, getting his bearings. And then he would speed down the hall and bear hug and tackle me. And it was glorious, both of it, all of it the girls, and the boy. And that was an expression I didn't deserve, but that was an expression of love. That, that's roughly equivalent to Abba, Father, Daddy, you're home. You love me. You're good. You came back. You didn't go away. You love us. You work hard for us. Ah, Dad, security confidence, hope, love, Abba, that's us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the London preacher, said this, grown-up people may be standing at a distance and showing great deference and being very formal, but the little child comes running in. He rushes and he holds on to his father's legs. He has a right that no one else has. 
It's not a matter of argument or logic or understanding. It's instinctive. It's a confidence born of knowledge that is deeper than words, deeper than understanding itself, he writes. There's this instinctive knowledge that this man loves me. Don't you wish if your father has died and he loved you, don't you wish you could greet him one more time? What would that be like if you could? What would it be like? How much joy and emotion would be in that reunion? Well, there's something far greater in your relationship with God. Whatever your earthly relationship has been like, and some of you have had not great relationships with your father, and you actually struggle. I think part of why we don't have a great doctrine of God the Father is because some in the church, some in ministry, some theologians even, and certainly some Christians, haven't had a good relationship with dad. Full stop. And so they read that onto God the Father. If he was distant, if he was unapproachable, they see God the Father that way. I talked about this with the men this weekend. There's a generation that tells me regularly when I talk about manhood, they come up to me after and they say, either I never heard my dad say he loved me or I hardly ever heard my dad say he loved me. And they're not coming up to slash and burn their father's tires or something like this. They're more talking about just how things have changed. In previous generations, many of those men worked hard and tried to show their love and demonstrate it and bless the family. And so there was much more of an actional understanding of love. You don't so much verbally express it, you show it. And I understand that. And yet, can you imagine not saying, I love you to your children? A Christian father should never... Honestly, never fall prey to that. And we shouldn't say, I love you begrudgingly or like, mm, I love you, you know. You should. <laughs> That's not how we want to say, you know, Christmas once a year. <laughs> I love you. All right, well, what are we doing now? No, we, <laughs> we want to be fathers who ooze love. We want to grab your son as he walks by He's just in his own world for no good reason. And you say, man, bear hug him. I love you. And he's like, love you too, dad, <laughs> on his way. You want to just go up to your girls for no good reason and just, oh, daddy loves you. And they look at you shocked. What? Huh? Okay. Back to homeschool, back to my homework for my schooling, whatever it is. That's the kind of character we want to have as earthly fathers because our father God the Father is not like an incommunicative, not very kind earthly father. He is incredibly kind. He is incredibly good. I talked about this with the men as well, but if you'll look with me at Luke 15 very quickly, it's a famous story in Scripture. The parable of the prodigal son will do this rapid fire because we're hastening toward our conclusion but if you just think about the parable of the prodigal son afresh, there's gold in it about this, about how we approach the father. The prodigal son had been given everything because his father was generous and kind and loving. 
But what did the prodigal son do? He squandered it. He wasted it. He gambled it all away. He ended up in a pigsty. (sighs) Tough place to be. Verse 17 of Luke 15. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Pause there. So the son is having profound humility wash over him. And this happens to children, doesn't it? Children do grow up in loving homes and can really think wrongly and sinfully that dad and mom, who are never going to be perfect, including me and my wife, but can think dad and mom don't really love me. And they can run from dad and mom and they cannot listen to dad and mom and they can distrust what dad and mom say, and they can disobey what dad and mom say, and they can almost have a functional hatred of dad and mom in their heart, not seeing just how blessed they are to have a Christian father and a Christian mother, imperfect as we all are. Well, the prodigal son has a moment of humility. He's not coming back to say, Dad, you weren't really a good father, but I mean, I'm back here, you know. No, he's at his absolute basement. And he says, all right, treat me as one of your servants. That's all I deserve. What an instructive mindset for young men and young women who have fallen into the trap, wrongly of thinking dad and mom do not love them. This is instructive, this parable. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, here it is, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a story. What a mark of humility on the part of the son. He has seen his dad and mom wrongly. And some in here need to be sprung from the trap of despising dad and mom and repent and go back to them and say, I know you weren't perfect, but I understand you tried to love me. We need to heal this. Let's figure this out. You forgive me and I'll forgive you. But even more than that, the focus on the the focus in the parable is on the father. The father. The character of the father. The father doesn't hold back. He doesn't stay back here. Oh, that looks like my son. Oh. I'm not going to him. I've got nothing to give him. Squandered my inheritance shamed my name in public. Mm-mm. There's no, there's no more new chances for you, son. No. What's the character? What's the character here? 
his father saw him a long way off and ran and embraced him. So we don't need to belabor this, but this story and this passage in Romans is speaking with one voice and it's telling us that God the Father is infinitely loving. The Father loves us. And that's tremendously transformative. We need to go to our fourth truth. Fourth, we are heirs of all that is God's. We are heirs of all that is God's. Verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is a huge ministry of the Holy Spirit. You and It tells us it's natural to doubt that you are a child of God. Doubt is not something that might happen once in your life. Doubt is a temptation. Doubt is a failing. Doubt is a sin, but it's a sin we all understand. God gave the Spirit to counter it. God gave the Spirit so that when you and I slip into thinking wrongly about God, the Spirit ministers. The Spirit ministers to you, ministers assurance. You say, I'm not a child of God. Okay, I really have gone beyond the limits of grace. All right, I'm past them. And the Spirit says, no, you haven't. No, you're a child of God. You shouldn't be (laughs) by rights, but God loves you. This is the Spirit's ministry to us. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we have everything in Christ. We are so tempted as believers, especially in a prosperous materialistic context like this, to focus on what we don't have. You can turn on Food Network and you can see amazing food prepared every single minute. And you think, I don't have those options. Where are those hipsters in my neighborhood? It's hipsters with their good food. I'm not going to dress like them, but they have very good food. Okay. You can turn on HGTV and you, oh, the homes. Do you see the bedrooms? Do you see the opening? Do you see the open concept? I've learned so many terms in the last 15 years of marriage watching way more HGTV than I ever thought I would watch. I know all these terms. Oh, I wouldn't have chosen that backsplash. I can tell you that, sweetie. You know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what that was just a few years ago. Now I can, we can have a whole conversation about backsplash if you want. Backsplashes or backsplash. Huh? Think about that one for several minutes. You can, you can head to your local, you don't have to try, you can head to your local Walmart or Target. And I mean, it's actually a burden to shop there. Certainly as the husband, it's like buy barbecue sauce. Okay, barbecue sauce on my way home from work for my wife. Go to the barbecue sauce, okay, barbecue sauce aisle and there are roughly 8,000 barbecue sauce options. Okay, this is a prosperous context we find ourselves in, and it can be easy for us to take things for granted, but when we go to Scripture, we find that the inheritance we want and need has nothing to do, ultimately, with the material world. Your house may not be your forever house. You may not live in the city with all the cool food. 
You, you may not have the, the dream life you thought you were going to create like a modern American does. You may not get that. I don't know. Maybe you will. If you do, great, great. No shame there. But here's what you are going to get. Here's what we all are going to get. Everything. Everything in Christ. You see, this is where the sons that we were talking about earlier comes back into play. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are all, every Christian, man or woman alike, is the firstborn son in the ancient world who got everything the Father had. That's everyone in here who is a Christian. We will get it all. We are adopted now, and we will be adopted in finality on the last day. We have a protector. We have infinite hope in Jesus Christ. We are cleansed of all our sin. The stain and stench of our sin is gone through Christ. We will be made new in coming days. Our bodies, which now creak and groan and get older and break down, will be spiritual bodies that suffer no loss we will reign and rule over the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. Friends, we're going to inherit everything. This is good news. But just as we close, there's a condition. We must suffer in order to be glorified. True Christianity is suffering Christianity. True Christianity means that you tell the truth. True Christianity means that you're the one in your workplace who stands up against evil. True Christianity means that you go to the school board and you say, little boys are not going in the little girls' room. True Christianity means you support those in public who say gender transition surgeries on minors are wicked, as indeed they are. True Christianity means you talk to your neighbor and you try to share the gospel with them in a friendly but convictional way. True Christianity means that there are all sorts of behaviors and practices you can't do. True Christianity means you are mocked. True Christianity means you are disliked. True Christianity means you are passed over for things that other people are not passed over for. On and on the list goes. But if you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. So remember that today, Christian. In conclusion, we talked about Jose Fernandez at the beginning of this sermon. He, by his own admission, his own testimony was blind, living in dread and tortured. And then, though a Dominican priest in the Catholic Church, a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke John 5:24 to him he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation but is passed from death into life and here's what he said at that moment i felt myself passing from death to life and under the influence of a supernatural force my life since then has been a public testimony to the power of the spirit i have been saved by god's grace. And so it is for all who are in Christ. We will suffer now. There is hardship now. There is sin to fight and battle now. There is the world's hatred that we will face in some measure now. But very soon, you and I will walk into 
everlasting light. Death will come for us, but when death comes for us, it will not be the end. It will be the beginning, and we will walk into the light of Jesus Christ, and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and we will say, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father, please help us to persevere until the end. Please help us to kill sin. Please help us to suffer in order that we would be glorified. And please help us to know, lastly, just how great your love is, for we all doubt it, we all stray, we all wander, we all sin, we all stumble in many ways. So help us, refresh us, and strengthen us to know your everlasting love in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.